Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank Discussion with Passion on CJD 800. Welcome to the Friday edition of Passion, where just about anything goes. Coming up after 10.15, we're going to talk to a researcher who's doing a study on persistent genital arousal disorder. So we'll find out about that. Plus, uh, you'll get an update on the Pornhub story uh, and true stories from the Playboy Mansion. Plus, Lilo did a study, it's a sex toy company, on what people uh, share about their sexual history. We might even get a chance to talk about good after-sex hygiene, and if we have time, even more. But first... Time to check out our inbox. Your texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion at 514-800. All right, I want to uh, just go back to the text board from a couple of nights uh, back, and somebody had said, do not for any reason take your partner for granted. I wanted to share this Again, uh, simply because it's important. It's an important reminder. A person says, you never know when they will not be there. And then Chris wrote and said, I agree not to take uh, for granted. I lost my wife this June because I did. So I'm assuming you lost your wife through divorce, uh, which is what it sounds like. So I'm sorry to hear that. It's a hard lesson to learn. But for all of us, just a little uh, reminder to not take our partners for granted, which means, if people don't know what that means, is showing and talking uh, appreciation, showing appreciation with your words and your actions. A texture writes in, my boyfriend of a year and a half is not as loving and sexual as he used to be. Can the pandemic be the reason? You betcha. Lots and lots of people are affected in this way. So feeling uh, low, feeling down. I'm not going to say uh, necessarily clinically depressed, although there are plenty of people who are. But one of the signs of depression is a loss of uh, loss of libido. So it could be what it's explaining why your partner may not be so into sex. Maybe you can talk uh, to him about uh, saying that you're you miss connecting with him and you would like to connect more. I'm not talking about sexually, but at least exp- the expressions of love and support. Letting uh, maybe using your own words and letting your partner know that you are there for them as well and that you love them and show them. Um, affection. So instead of holding back, maybe you can show them affection as well. Dr. Laurie, we watched the movie. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. We talked about that. Uh, a truly delightful movie. And we love Charles Bronson too. We also watched Silent Light with Linda Hamilton. Uh, this movie gets more and more interesting as it went on and based on actual events made here in St. Lazar where we live. That's cool. I suggest this movie, which can be found on YouTube as well. So that's uh, Silent Night with Linda Hamilton. It is nice you guys, uh, you give the LGBTQ time on your show, but we always hear from the gay men. Being a lesbian, my partner and I just tune out. When will we hear an all-lesbian or bi-female panel? Would you like to join our panel? You can do that. Uh, we have had uh, lesbian women on the panel. It's just hard to find uh, one that 
wants to be regular. Like we had one and she was here for a while and then she moved and our time, the time difference didn't work out. So uh, I'm open, always open to, uh, to suggestions. We hope you had a nice Hanukkah, regardless of the COVID restrictions. We would like to know if it may be possible to repeat the night before Christmas poem sometime. We think if it was on your Facebook page, it would go viral, but not suitable for Facebook Sensors. Does anybody else want to hear that uh, poem? It's the Dirty Night Before uh, Christmas poem by the uh, Passion Poet. So it's not that long. If you want me to read it, just give me a yay or nay if, if you haven't heard it and you want to hear it. Uh, but I want to get to some some questions. So let me know. Maybe I'll read it towards the end of the show once I get your uh, feedback if you think I should read it. Um, again, I've read it like this would be the third time, but it is the holidays and for the spirit of things. Uh, somebody wants to know by email, which you can send me to Lori at drlori.com anytime, um, even over the holidays. Yeah, feel free to, uh, to send me your questions. The simply says best pill for ED. So you're asking for medication for erectile dysfunction. The first thing, if you have erectile dysfunction, I would want to know uh, the, the cause. So rather than just say, here, take this pill, I'd want to know why is this happening? Is this psychological? Is this age related? Uh, is it something physical? So we want to find out the, the cause. We can treat it. It can be treated with erectile dysfunction meds, but I don't think it's so wise just to give, treat the symptom and not look for the cause. But that's that's me, and I, I'm far more cautious when it comes to that. And then also having looked at the research, which shows that erectile dysfunction can be a precursor a few years down the line to heart uh, diff- cardiac difficulties. So it's it's warranted that you look into it um, more. Uh, so check with your, your doctor. Don't just take the prescription and walk away. Talk to your doctor and say, I need, I want to find out why this is happening. Uh, very, very important. So I don't think there is a best pill. Uh, there are a number of different pills that work differently. There's a number of treatments for erectile dysfunction. Obviously, the one everybody's heard about is Viagra. Uh, Viagra works. You take it uh, 45 minutes before or two hours before. I forget. Uh, there's Cialis, which you can take uh, 48 hours before before and it's good for those 48 hours. There's Levitra. Each of them are different, have different indications and they don't always work. It's not one size fits all and it may not work the first time. Sometimes you have to try it a few times in order for it to be um, effective. And for some people it doesn't work at all. So remember that you need to, you can't just take it and just hope an erection happens. You take it and then you have to stimulate and you have to be aroused in order for it to work. Coming up, speaking of arousal, we'll talk about persistent genital arousal disorder with Dr. Carolyn Pukal, a researcher at Queen's University. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. All right, we're going to hear about a topic that we don't often talk about here. It's a, a condition. Um, I'm not going to say it's taboo, but a lot of people don't, even who experience this, don't really want to talk about this. But we are going to talk about it because there is research going on around persistent 
genital arousal disorder. I bet you're wondering what that is. Well, here to tell us is Dr. Carolyn Pukal. She is a professor and sex researcher at Queen's University in the midst of a research project, and she is recruiting participants. Uh, so listen up. If this fits you, then you might be a good candidate uh, for this, uh, this research project. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Pukal. Thank you so much, Lori. It's so great to be here. I love having you. Okay, let's talk about first what what we are talking about. How would you define this? Well, persistent genital arousal is um, a condition where people feel that their genitals are are turned on. So their genitals feel like they're throbbing, like all these like sensations that we would typically associate with feeling turned on. Um, but unfortunately, their minds are not interpreting these sensations as pleasurable. And so arousal incorporates a lot of different factors. And the two main ones are the sensations we have in our body and then the interpretation that we have of those sensations. And typically, these things go together. So we feel turned on in our body. We interpret those sensations as wanted and as pleasurable. But what happens in individuals with persistent genital arousal is that their genitals feel turned on, but their minds are just not into it. And it's not just, you know, here and there. I think that can happen pretty much to a lot of people or, their, you know, people's minds right. can be into it, but Sometimes. their bodies aren't into it. Right. right. But these sensations go on for long periods of time, hours and days. And, you know, some people might think that that's something that people would want, <laughs> but in fact, it's very distracting. It's that, that's, distracting. Yeah. That's it's like unwanted. a guide. Right, it's like a guy having an erection full time. Like that exactly. would not would not fit. <laughs> would not be able it, to go through the day. <laughs> exactly. That would be, you know, for short periods of time, I think, you know, feeling turned on is a really great thing, but it's just not sustainable long term and especially if it's something that you feel is very unwelcome and that is hugely distressing to you. Um, it's the same sort of idea with orgasm. Everybody always thinks that orgasm and arousal, these are things that are pleasurable. These are things that people want and you can't have enough of it, mm. but you actually can. And it can be very disruptive to people's lives. It can cause a lot of interference. It leads to a lot of shame and stigma. A lot of people don't understand it. So when, mm -hmm. you know, people, people come to their healthcare providers and they're like, well, I just kind of feel turned on all the time and I'm upset about it. A lot of the time, it's just not understood right. that, you know, it's unwanted and that it's unpleasant. Um, so they're dismissed um, quite often if, of course, the healthcare providers don't know about persistent genital arousal or they may be misdiagnosed um, as hypersexual because mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time, you know, these individuals need to masturbate. They need to self-stimulate to quell those sensations. Um, right. And it may actually take quite a lot of masturbation for those sensations to decrease in intensity and to go away even for a little while. And so sometimes people get stuck in the behavior. And so what they see is sort of a person who's coming in, com you know, sort of complaining about feeling turned on and masturbating a lot. And nobody really stops to question their own assumptions 
about, you mm. know, sort of why this is going on. And they sort of look at the behavior. They, they assume arousal is like, you know, that, that there's, you know, it has to be, it, this person must have high desire and must have high right. pleasure because, you know, and so sometimes, unfortunately, they get misdiagnosed as hypersexual or as having a sex addiction because. Exactly. Yeah, the healthcare providers are looking at the behavior and not necessarily the motivation behind that behavior. And um how common doing, is it, Dr. Pukal? Well, you know, it um it we don't know much about it, but we have done some preliminary studies and it does look like um it is it affects about 1 to 4% of people. We just published a study um, in the journal Sexual Medicine, looking at um, prevalence rates in undergraduate students as well as a population-based study in the United, United States, um, and all of the different, um, like with with tons of with with hundreds of different people, um, men, women, non-binary individuals, and the prevalence rates, depending on certain criteria that we were looking at, ranged from about one to four percent. So this is actually more common than most people would think. Yeah. Um, and so it's really great that you're highlighting this on your show, you know, to really sort of get this message out that it exists, people are not alone, um, but we all need to be on board and be asking the right questions and be listening to the people who are sharing their symptoms with us uh, in order to help move them forward and not diagnose them with something that they don't have because right. treatments, you know, for hypersexuality or sex addiction are very different than what we would typically recommend uh, for yeah. a person with PGAD. Right. So the treatment would be completely different. So how, how does this get treated? Well, that's, you know, we don't have, there's tons of case studies out there with people trying all sorts of things, you know, uh, but we we don't have good data, but we do find, you know, sort of more clinically speaking that, um, you know, like um, psychotherapy with a person who understands sexuality and understands PGAD, um, you know, and also has a framework of kind of working with distressing sensations in the genital area um, can be very, very helpful. It could be very validating. And a lot of these individuals have high distress. We found in our studies that um, just thinking about harming themselves, so this, this idea of wow. suicidal ideation is actually quite common as compared to suicidal ideation in the general population. Hmm. And, and so working on that distress and, you know, working with the client in order to, you know, sort of cope and manage with these symptoms and to decrease that distress in a validating and very supportive environment where, you know, we're working towards kind of them, you know, empowering themselves to understand their symptoms, try to see if there's a pattern in there, try to work with, you know, what may quell those symptoms a little bit, try to avoid things that may trigger, um, mm-hmm. try to find out when that arousal could be pleasurable so they could be sexual with themselves and with their partners. So we have to work on multiple levels. Right. And another, and another uh, treatment that we find uh, that has been helpful is pelvic floor physiotherapy, which is also mm. very helpful for people who have genital pelvic pain conditions like vulvodynia. Yeah. Um, and um, so, and you know, other people are sort of touting more invasive 
treatments like surgeries and things like wow. that along the spinal cord, yes, but we okay. don't have enough data and we certainly don't have enough long-term data in order to really see what happens with individuals in the long term. So, right. you know, and being a psychologist, I like the less invasive, you know, sort of more skill, skills-based, you know, and that could easily come through with psychotherapy as well as with that pelvic floor physiotherapy as well. Right. We've got Dr. Carolyn Pukal, professor and sex researcher at Queen's University, doing a study on persistent genital arousal disorder, which affects 1% to 4% of the population, something not much talked about. We still don't know what causes it, do we? No, we don't. Um, we don't. We find that in about 30% of uh, individuals with PGAD, they report um, being on a type of antidepressant medication called an SSRI. So sometimes people will say when they started an SSRI medication for depression or anxiety, that's around the time that their symptoms started. Yes, other people find it's when they come off that medication. But frankly, we don't know. This is all based Hmm. on retrospective report. Um, You know, sometimes it could be due to Um, You know, it it really, sometimes it starts out of the blue. Other times, you know, there's something that happens. But, you know, I've been in the field of genital pelvic sort of sensations that are distressing for a really long time. And uh, we really have to understand that this is a multifactorial condition in all likelihood and that everyone's path to this particular symptom, this this particular symptom constellation will be different. And so we need to be very, very creative, you know, when we're treating them. And can you just, uh, in the last minute or so we have left, can you tell us about the the study and who could qualify for the study? Absolutely. So um, this is an online study. You could find um, information about it on sexlab.ca backslash participate. And we are looking for people who have symptoms that are consistent with persistent genital arousal disorder. So those unwanted distressing genital sensations that just don't seem to go away um, with reasonable sort of masturbation and mm-hmm. kind of over time. Um, and what we're doing is because there's this conflation and this confusion around sort of hypersexuality and PGAD, we are also recruiting people who have symptoms consistent with hypersexuality or sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior, whatever you want to call it, to complete a questionnaire. It takes about 45 minutes so that we could see sort of how could we actually have a, have a questionnaire that we could develop that could be actually very easy to give in a clinic that could give a healthcare right. provider a lot of information as to whether this person has hypersexuality or if they have PGAD because that's where we're missing the mark, you know, a, a lot link, of the yeah. time, right? Well, I'm so happy you're doing research on this. Obviously, uh, still lots to know about sexuality, but this particular uh, area, absolutely. So it's sexlab.ca slash participate. Is that it? Yes, that's correct. Wonderful. Dr. Carolyn Pukal, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure as always. Uh, Sexlab.ca slash participate if you are interested. Coming up, our stupid sex story of the night, plus more sex in the news. From the pleasure and the politics to the hangups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. You're going to love this stupid sex story. A Michigan man who sued his parents 
for throwing out his prized pornography collection is now in line to collect a hefty reimbursement from them. In a ruling handed down last Wednesday, the judge, um, by the judge, Beth and Paul Working will have to pay their son David, who's 42, as much as $75,000 for destroying the porn. David Working won a summary judgment in the case, and he and his parents have until mid-February to file written submissions on the net, the damages. In his lawsuit, the younger Working uh, valued the property at an estimated 25000 but his attorney told the outlet that we have asked the court for treble damages, which we believe are warranted given the wanton destruction of the property. He added this was a collection of often irreplaceable items and property. Now, David, 42 years old, moved into his parents' home, this is in Lake Michigan, in 2016 after he got divorced. After uh, he moved to Indiana a few months later, he discovered he was missing 12 boxes of pornographic films and magazines. Uh, the father apparently confessed to destroying the collection in an email. He wrote, Frankly, David, I did you a big favor by getting rid of all this stuff. In other emails, he told his son he was shocked by many of the scenes in the collection, which he claimed depicted incestuous sexual relationships, sex with minors and animals, sexual assault and slavery, uh, that you would buy and watch films depicting such violence is beyond the pale, the father wrote. I have no words to express the depth of my shock and disappointment. Believe it or not, one reason for why I destroyed your porn was for your own mental and emotional health. I would have done the same if I had found a kilo of crack cocaine. The son denied any of his pornography was illegal. A review of the materials by the sheriff's department found no evidence of child pornography and no charges were filed in the matter. A detailed list of his porn collection that was entered into the court record showed it included 1,605 individual titles of pornographic DVDs. Could you imagine this guy's collection and VHS tapes and at least 50 sex toys and paraphernalia? And he's suing his parents for destroying that. You think that relationship will be repaired? <laughs> I don't know. All right. I have a couple of questions I want to get to since this is uh, open to anything tonight. And even if I don't get to some of the sex news, that's all right. I prefer to answer your question since I will be, you know, away for a few days, oh, not away, away, but away from the show for a few days, taking a, a short break. So I want to get these answered. Dr. Lori, my husband of 42 years has become obsessed with anal sex. While far from a prude, I've always thought this was dirty. Today, he seemed to have an interest in my bodily functions. Am I being prude or is this unusual? This is from Ontario. First of all, it's I, the word prude uh, to me just, throw that out, out the window. We all have our boundaries. We all have our limitations. If anal sex isn't for you, it's not for you. And you're allowed to put that line in the sand that says there are things I would do. I'm very open sexually. There's many things I would do. This I do not want to do. This is not for me. So you're allowed to say this. Why he has become obsessed all of a sudden, I, I don't know if it's all of a sudden, if it has always been this way. Um, and I'm not sure what you mean by the interest in the bodily 
functions. Again, if you're not comfortable, speak up and talk about this with him and ask him, what is the interest? What is turning you on here? Maybe he's suddenly looking at some um, porn, different types of porn. He's needing more things to be stimulated by. Ask him, uh, have a discussion about this. So he, you're not being a prude. It's not that it's unusual. Some people have these kinds of fetishes. I'm just wondering also, have they always been there, these fetishes? And he's just now talking about it more? Or is this something, is this something he's kept hidden? Or is this a new kind of development? So if you're having trouble having this discussion, you might want to speak to uh, someone who specializes in sexuality to be able to have the, like a discussion with a, a third party in the room with you to help you communicate about this a little bit. Dr. Lori, I'm hoping you can help me. My boyfriend really needs to go to therapy. He was diagnosed with autism as well as being highly intelligent as a young child. He is highly functioning. You wouldn't really be able to tell. So I think you're talking about Asperger's here. Uh, but he can be emotionally distant, which is a characteristic of it, have difficulty empathizing, another trait. And sometimes he is very cold but doesn't realize it. Again, another trait of Asperger's. Uh, the real problems are his impulsivity, whether with sex or aggression, and he is also very good at getting out of problems by being smart and good with words. He recently cheated on me and lied about it for a year and a half, despite my constant questions and suspicions. He wants to go to therapy to work on these issues, as well as his problems with depression and anxiety. Do you have any recommendations? As I'm worried, he will try to be charismatic with the psychologist, so I need a recommendation for someone who can challenge him and call him out on his tendency to manipulate and lie, which he is very skilled at. My apologies at the length of this text. I'm a frequent listener and admire your work very much, and I'm hoping for some guidance or help. Well, you're in luck because uh, this is exactly the kind of work that I do. Over the last 15 years or so, developed an expertise working with uh, clients who are on the spectrum and working with relationships where one person is on the spectrum. In fact, in the last 10 years or so, some uh, some really good research and books have been written about this very topic. Uh, if you look up uh, Maxine Aston, A-S-T-O-N, you will find she's written a whole bunch of books, um, like being able to deal with a partner who is on the spectrum and they talk about sexuality. And there's even a book called um, uh, Autism and Sexuality. Um, I think that's the title of it from um, Isabel, you know, uh, a Montrealer sexo a sexologist who has written a book about that. So there is, you just need to make sure that whoever you go with, you can choose to to consult with me. I, I you know, you can send me an email, Lori at drlaurie.com, and we can discuss it. Or whoever you're going to choose, make sure they have experience in working with adult uh, Aspergers and relationships in that uh, in that department. All right, coming up, I will give you and and uh, give you an update on what the measures that Pornhub has taken after the whole fiasco that we talked about last week. Passion with Dr. Lori Batido on CJAD eight hundred. A texter writes in, when in the world did that porn fanatic have time to watch his entire collection, I wonder? And it made me think of a client I once had who for years was cataloging porn. Like that was his pastime. And he had just collections like 
uh, I, I don't know, some on DVD on his computer, like thousands and thousands of porn. And I asked him, do you watch them all? And he actually said, no, he just liked to catalog everything. And, and it was just porn that he cataloged. It was a little strange and come to think of it, you know, he, he had this obsession. I, I believe he was on the spectrum and which, I mean, it's not a, I don't want to make that direct link, but the, 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 the huge interest in the cataloging in something, anything, uh, and he just happened to choose, uh, pornography. So similar kind of story. And speaking of, uh, porn, this headline and they, boy, did they react fast. More than half of all videos on porn have, have been removed after the platform changed its policy to ban unverified uploaders. This is, you have no idea what a huge move that is. This happened on Monday and Pornhub said as part of our policy to ban unverified uploaders, we have now also suspended all previously uploaded content that was not created by content partners or members of the model program, which basically means a whole heck of a lot of porn. This means every piece of Pornhub content is from verified uploaders now, a requirement that platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, and Twitter have yet to institute. Imagine we use those, I would think, far more and uh, all together. And there have been, I think they reported back uh, 89, what was it, 89 million, 89,000 um, pieces, like, instances of child uh, sexual abuse in three years. I think it was 89 million, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So on Sunday evening, according to Vice, the number of videos on the site was slashed from 13.5 million, that's how many videos were on the site, to only now 4.7 million. That still sounds like a heck of a lot of different kinds of videos and, and porn. As of Monday afternoon, the figure stood at 2.9 Million. The content purge took place after multiple hits to the company uh, last week. Uh, last Monday, December 7th, a New York Times piece was published which followed victims of child sexual abuse whose videos had been uploaded to Pornhub and then was followed by Visa and MasterCard uh, taking away their, uh, um, you know, uh, their usage of their cards on the site. Uh, but Tuesday, Pornhub had changed its policy to only allow verified uploaders and ramp up its moderation efforts, even though Thursday, Visa and MasterCard said they would no longer be processing payments on the site, even though Pornhub had done all that. But hey, they still, um, I mean, Pornhub said it was being targeted by those who want to outlaw porn altogether, which I tend to agree because why aren't they going after the other sites like Facebook, which has way, way more, 84 million instances of child sexual abuse material over three years versus 118 in three years incidents on Pornhub. Think of that for a minute. That, uh, that difference. And Pornhub says that is still 118 too many, which is why we are committed to taking every, uh, necessary, um, action. So this is what they, uh, they have done. Um, 
you need to know that, uh, and they, they point this out in the article, that the National Center on Sexual Exploitation is a Christian organization formerly known as Morality in Media, and they have been linked to uh, all kinds of things, uh, you know, against same-sex marriage, against LGBT rights, against all kinds of uh, things. So like their own little morality uh squad, something like that. Uh, text writes, and Facebook cannot continue and continually monitor 170, 1.70 billion users, right? So lots of stuff gets put on there that should never be there, but it never, it doesn't get targeted in the same, in the same way. So, uh, that's, that's the unfortunate part. Uh, then I want to read this. This was, the headline was angry nerd. If you're dating online in a pandemic, ghost or be ghosted. So <laughs> he, uh, this, this is just a letter, an open letter to, I don't even know where I found this, but he says, please don't complain to me about literally anything. If you've touched human flesh since March being very single, I have not. And my Grubhub guy doesn't want a hug. So I am doomed. I don't know if this is from a female or a male, actually. Um, in, so I am doomed instead to online dating in the context of a pandemic. Let me walk you through the torture. It starts typically enough with endless scrolling through profiles of now offensively irrelevant travel photos. No one asks, how's it going anymore? The new opener is, picked up any new hobbies? I can't help but respond no, unless you count screaming into the void. If they find me cute, funny, we arrange a FaceTime or Zoom, the latter being preferable for its touch-up my appearance feature. <laughs> we talk and misread glitching, pixel-blurred facial cues, and if all goes tolerably, make it to first base, which is a socially distanced park sit. Goodbyes, whether on a screen or in real life, are harder than ever. All right. Well, anyway, someone mumbles, straining to find an excuse, even though amid mass boredom, there isn't one. Worse still is saying goodbye for good. A week after a third date that fizzled into mutual boredom, I got an, I'm not feeling the spark text. Same, but ouch. Another person sent me an unprompted, I'm not looking for a relationship text four days after our last interaction in which I did not ask for a relationship. Whatever happened to ghosting? Maybe it used to be rude and detrimental to both parties' mental health, but that was pre-COVID. I no longer need your attempts at nobility, reminders of a flesh and blood humanity made irrelevant by contactless existence. Ghosting is more suitable to the times. It's silent. It's safe. It conforms to the unbearable lightness of our disembodied beings. Besides, look around. It's 2020 and nobody expects a happy ending. I thought that was, <laughs> that was a very interesting rant. No? Oh my, my, my. Well, I think um, that's about it for our news tonight. We didn't really get to too much, but what the hey, it's uh, 
still something, uh, but at least I got a chance to answer some of your questions. I want to remind you, we still have a couple of shows uh, next week. We've got uh, what's happening next week. We have our baby boomer panel. We have Linda Hammerschmidt answering your legal questions, especially around the holidays. There may be some issues around custody and such. Uh, and we have, of course, our troubled, uh, troubled Tuesdays where I'll get to your questions. So please send me your questions about love, sex, relationships uh, to Lori at drlori.com. You can go straight to my website, drlori.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com. Fill out the contact sheet there and I will get uh, your email and then just tune into the show. If you can't tune into the show, you can pick up our podcast on the iHeart app. If you go to the CGAD page, you can go to uh, my website. There's a passion radio tab and right there uh, you have access to all the past, um, the past shows as well. Somebody wrote in that was so well written. Yes, it was a beautiful rant, which is why um, I read it. <laughs> Thank you to all of you for taking the time to be with me. Uh, of course, you know how much I appreciate uh, your uh, your time and your your listenership. Um, thank you so much to Dustin Kagan, our technical producer tonight, to Linda Delisi, our passion researcher as well. Have a great rest of the evening, an even greater weekend. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion.